Well, God bless you all. It's been a beautiful day, isn't it? Glorious. So we'll be in 1 John chapter 3, if you want to turn there. It's, it's so neat that God gives us new days and just thinking about how he makes all things new, how we can be born again, we can become a new person through faith in Jesus. And I think claiming to be a religious person or a, uh, a, even a Christian is not quite as confronting the world as saying you've been born again, saying that you are now someone totally different. And uh, maybe to someone outside the church, a born again is someone who is a zealot, a fundamentalist, uh, backwards or brainwashed or you know, someone who reads the Bible and talks about Jesus all the time. And it must be odd to the world to have people who immerse themselves in an ancient text, who spend their Sundays, you know, listening to sermons at church and singing songs to God. And that's just very foreign to a lot of people's lives. And But to those who are born again, who have been born again, it's a very different thing because we realize we passed from death to life. We were lost. Now we've been found. We have been accepted as children of God. We've been adopted into his family. Uh, we were in, in darkness, now in light. Like, everything has changed. Our perspective is new. Sorrow has turned to rejoicing. So, um, it is glorious to be born again and to know that God is, is changing us still. He's still making us more into his image. And what a joy we have in him. Let's thank him. Father in heaven, thank you that you are our Father, that you have adopted us as your own children by your grace. Thank you for Jesus who has come and revealed your love from heaven and the plans that you have for us that are developing. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit, and we ask that you would fill us afresh as we read your word and consider your manner of love toward us in Jesus' name. Amen. It's Psalm 34, 8. It says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. And you'd agree that seeing food and tasting food are two very different things. You can see food, and I mean, some people are on the seafood diet. They see the food. They eat the food. Uh, I remember visiting the honey farm in Tasmania, and they had over a 100 different varieties of honey. I mean, I didn't even know there, there was that many kinds, and... and uh, I think the leatherwood honey was the specialty of the region. But they had chili honey, and, and all these honeys, they, they looked pretty similar, all being honey, but they did not taste the same. There was a lot of variation between them, and so you were, you were allowed to taste as much as you wanted to see which one you liked the best. And so we're told to taste and see that the Lord is good. We need to experience him to really have an understanding of how good he is. Because you could say, oh, that honey's really good. And you go, well, it looks good. And you've said it's good. But it's not until you've tasted it that you can see that it's good in a very different way. And that's how it is with God, that we are to taste and see that he is good. We're to experience him, his presence. Just reading about him, just hearing about him is not enough. We have to experience him. And the only way to know him is to be born again by him, to be brought into his family now to have him living within you and making you a new person. So just to bring us up to speed with our text, uh, last week we concluded in 1 John 2, verse 28 and 29, and John is speaking to Christians. He says, And now, little children, abide in him, that when he appears we may have confidence 
and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. Parents give their children responsibilities, and God has given all of us who are born again responsibilities to take care of that while he is away, Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And the main things we're to do is to love God and to love one another as he has loved us. And the question that we need to consider is, will I be ashamed or confident upon his return? When my days on earth are done and I have to answer for my life, will I feel like I have finished the course and I have run the race that God has put before me? I can compare Christ's return um, to a time when a friend and I were asked to house sit. I was just out of high school, 18 years old, during a, a month and a half during the summer, and this family was going to Germany. And they gave us some basic things. They said, you know, mow the lawn, feed the dog, water the garden. You know, keep the place clean. We'd love to have it standing when we return. Now, why they asked 18-year-olds to do this, I have no idea. But apparently we were... We at least uh, fooled them enough. Uh, we took care of business. But, you know, there were times during that month and a half that had they come back, we would have been a little ashamed at their coming because the grass was tall and the flower beds were a bit dry and there were a lot of dishes in the sink and and rubbish was was not put away. But but when they returned, you know, we scurried around and we made sure everything was good and we felt confident that we've done the things that we were asked to do and the house was standing. So uh, the, the manner of Christ's return, it, like our lives are, are going to end someday and are we going to be scrambling around trying at the end of our lives to try to get things right? Or are we going to be confident that, you know, God has helped me to be responsible to what he's called me to? We are his children as we read in 1 John 3, 1. It says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Here, John points out the manner of love. He calls our attention to take a look at the manner of God's love towards you. Consider this. Look at the sort of love God has. There's a lot of love in the world. There's many kinds of love, but not one that's from the world resembles God's kind of love. God's love is an eternal love. The strongest bonds of love made on earth are broken upon death. The things that you love, many of them cannot love you back. And when I'm gone, all of my earthly loves will have perished. But God's love is eternal. It does not fail. God's love is an active love. The Bible says nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. Love is more than feelings, but it's relentless and constant in its pursuit of us for our good. God's love is a gracious love. It's given freely to those who do not deserve God's love. It's an unlimited love. You know, a parent, they love their child in a certain way. They, they don't love every child on the street or ones they've heard about the same way that they love their own children. But God is able to love all people intimately and completely. God's love is a sacrificial love. It's demonstrated through Christ dying on the cross, that he, he gave his life so we could live with him. 
He met our greatest need. God's love is a faithful love. It's loyal. It can be counted on completely at all times. There's been parents who were so offended by the decisions of their children that they said, you're dead to me. But God has never said that to any of his children. God's never wished death on anyone. But he sent his own beloved son to die so that we could live forever with him. We who were estranged from him and hated him, he has given his own son for us. To give yourself is one thing. To give your beloved son for the sake of someone else, that is great. So behold what manner of love he has bestowed upon us. And I think the enormity of God's love is often completely lost on us. We don't recognize it. First, we have to consider who God is. He is the creator of all things. He's created angels as righteous ministering spirits who are worthy to grace his courts. He's created man in his own image, but how low man has sunk. Hardly recognizable under filth. A stink in his nostrils. Where we have rejected him, we have opposed him, we have um, been disobedient, filled with deceit and murder. No angel is a child of God. But we can be children of God, though sinners, though estranged from him. And it's like that God would love us, that he would give his own son to die for us so he could adopt us. He was willing to pay the price. God, as the creator, could make anything he wants. He could create righteous people from the beginning who would stay righteous, who would honor him completely forever. He could have done that. But instead, he chose, the, he chose the way of humiliation and pain to come as a man among sinners to give his life for them, to demonstrate his love. The people that drove the nails in his hands and feet, he wanted them to be saved. He wanted them to be reconciled. People who caused him pain, he loved them, and he wanted to save them. Now, I have an example that might put this in perspective, and it does not do justice to what God has done. But say say you're a grand prize winner and you were given the choice of two options. You could have a uh you could be the new owner of a brand new home valued at fifty million dollars anywhere in Sydney, your location of choice. It's totally paid for, completely paid off, never have to make a payment again. Or you could own a dilapidated, uninhabitable heritage home in a poor suburb that's infested with rats, that you're, requ- you're required to pay for in full yourself. Now, which would you choose? One, you get the choice of location. It's got this great value. And the other one, it's just been neglected. You don't have a choice of where it is. If you chose the fixer-upper, the one that you have to pay for, instead of the others, your sanity would well be questioned. Like, Come on, you could buy a hundred hovels if you were to just sell that one. Um, now God, he chose us because he loved us. He's like the perfectly sane person who chooses to buy a heritage home because they love the home, they want to retain its personality, and they want it to shine again. They want it to be brilliant, not just to be an investment property that they're going to live in occasionally, but to be their primary habitation. 
saying, I want that house, and I want it to be restored to its former glory. Because when you restore a house, that's what you do. You don't try to make it all ultra-modern, and you try to retain it. You add some modern elements with the original design. And so God's like, I am willing to plunk down, not cash, I'm willing to pay with my own blood to buy this home, to buy you as the new temple of the Holy Spirit, where he wants to dwell within you as his primary residence. Have you ever driven by an old house that's been, you know, it was an eyesore for a long time, and you looked at it and go, wow, look at what they've done over there. They've really invested a lot of time and effort. It looks tremendous. It used to be an eyesore, but now it's just beautiful. It's really lifted the whole neighborhood. Everyone else is thinking, man, we got to lift the bar a bit. You know, it's, this, this is a nice place we have here. And how wonderful it is when God changes us and people begin to say, you know, that's not the same old rotten guy that I used to know. There's something different about him. He has changed. It's not just a facelift. Something has been transformed. There's a new owner. There's a new uh, tenant there that has made all the difference. And so when God transforms us and makes us new, he receives the glory for changes only he could do. And you think, come, come on, are we really that bad? like the old rat-infested, uh, condemned house. Well, you know it's impossible for me to overstate how sinful we are. I cannot overstate it. I could use every, I could, I could use every adjective or, uh, yeah, at my disposal, and I could not say fully how wicked we are, all of us. I could list every sin that I'm conscious of, and we would find a way to add to that. Man has written the book on sin. In fact, the Bible says that man has done things that never even came into God's mind. It says that in Jeremiah 32, 35. Three times in Jeremiah, it, it mentions this. It says, And they built the high places of Baal, which are in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Molech, which I did not command them, nor did it come into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah to sin. It's crazy that we could do things so wicked that wouldn't even have entered into the mind of God. So, yeah, pretty bad. Awful. What can you say? But let's turn to Titus chapter 3, 3 through 7. So we are unworthy. We have all added to the list of sins that have accumulated on this planet. But God has given us such love, despite our failures, our rottenness. Titus 3, starting in verse 3. It says, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness of the love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We often require evidence of love from someone towards us before we will love them. But God, he, in his mercy and grace, he showed love to us when we were hateful. We were disobedient. We disregarded him. We only hated him. He saved us when we were going our own way and wanted nothing to do with him. 
He was merciful to us when we deserved the fullness of his wrath. He chose us when we hated him. Who do you choose that hates you? I don't. If I know someone hates me, I'm not going to choose them to have a privileged position. I mean, it's just, it's crazy. He's accepted us into his family, not just as a servant or, you know, a maid or, but fellow heirs with Christ, heirs of the kingdom. We're in his will for eternity. He's justified us. He's forgiven us. And we are made wholly righteous, even as Jesus is. That we're clean, without guilt before him. He doesn't have a, a list of our past sins or our, even our current struggles that we, you know, we really need to deal with if we're going to be good sons and daughters. He sees us in a totally different way, in a, in a way covered with his love and grace. And he, he adopted us because he loves us, not just because he wants to change us, not because he wants us to do something, he, he, but those who are born again will be changed. We will do things because now it's his spirit who's living within us. And it's in our weakness that we discover God's strength. It says there in, in verse uh, 1, Therefore the world does not know us because it did not know him. Jesus came as the Son of God. He was royalty in human flesh, divine. God made flesh, but the world did not recognize him. The world rejected him. They didn't want him to be their savior. They didn't realize the one who made the blind see and who turned water into wine and who fed the 5,000 and walked on the water, the one who raised the dead, the one who died on the cross and rose himself. He was the one who created all things and he was the one who can give eternal life to all who trust in him. They didn't see it. His demonstration of love on Calvary when he breathed his last was lost on a lot of people that witnessed him that day. It says they went, ah, oh well, and they walked away. They weren't there at his tomb to anoint him. Jesus was rejected and hated by those who did not know him, and therefore we as his children and heirs of the kingdom, we won't be recognized as being his children. Right? You're born again, you have the same body. You look very much the same. It's not like you have a, a halo that forms or you start kind of glimmering on occasion and people, you have floating in the air and people are like, wow, that guy, he's really spiritual. No, it, we still live in a body of flesh. If they knew the advocate we have in Jesus Christ, they would think twice of persecuting us. But because they don't know him, they don't know us, and therefore, we will have per be persecuted. We will be face tribulation. Yet God gives us strength and consolation to endure. Praise him for that. Verse 2. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we, shall, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself, just as he is pure. And he calls us beloved there. And we are his children. Governments and courts, they restrict the rights of convicted criminals. Right? If you've committed a crime, you've been guilty, well, there are certain things that you are restricted from doing. In the States, you know, you can't own a firearm and you won't be able to vote. And there's certain penalties that apply. 
But God, the Bible says, has given sinners the right to become children of God. He gives us rights as sinners when we come to him in faith. It says so in John chapter 1, verse 11 through 13. It says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So it's God's will that we, who were sinners, can be saved. We can be made new. We can be transformed and be his children. So we can lay claim to that based upon his promises and his goodness to us. Paul reminded Christians of God's promise in 2 Corinthians 6.18. It says, I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. He says, I'm going to be a father to you. And we have great blessings as we read in Romans 8.16 and 17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now, to this point, I'm, I've not been made aware that I've been named as a beneficiary in anyone's will, that I have a legal claim to an inheritance. But as a child of God, however, I have God as my inheritance. I have an eternal uh, place in heaven with God, a reward that cannot be taxed, it cannot be lost, it can't be swindled or forgotten. It can't be stolen. I like the story when, when Jesus is preaching and someone just pipes up out of the audience, Teacher, make my brother divide the inheritance with me. And Jesus says, Man, who made you, who made me your executor? Like, I've got nothing to do with that. Hey guys, beware of covetousness. It's like, oh, that guy was probably thinking, oh, I guess he's right. Um, see, Jesus, he's the executor of the Father's will. And as his children, we will receive all that is due us by his grace, all that he plans to give us. He'll provide it. And it says, it shall, it has not been, yet been revealed what we shall be. See, none of us exactly knows what lies in store for us on earth or as we go into eternity. God hasn't revealed his timing or his plans. We've been born again. Our bodies have remained the same. But we know one day this mortal is going to put on immortality and this corruptible body will be replaced with an incorruptible one. We can only imagine what it may be like. And I think a lot of times we have questions that, that we won't have an answer for. And a lot of times we're asking questions that are quite beside the point. When we go to heaven, we won't be asking that question anymore. We'll realize that, wow, I don't even know why I was thinking that. And we won't even remember that we were thinking that. So that's good. Those who have tasted and seen that God is good, we are also pleased to wait and see what he is going to do because we know it will be good. And so John says, we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. And that word appearing or revealed, it means to make manifest, visible, or known what has been hidden or unknown. When Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared very ordinary, but he could do supernatural things. Like, for instance, Mary's in the garden. She's weeping. She sees someone that she thinks is the gardener. So he's like a tradie over there. And she's like, 
you know, where have you taken Jesus? And, and she realized, oh, that is Jesus. On the road to Emmaus, he looked like a common traveler. Uh, they, the people who were walking with didn't think anything odd or strange of him as they engaged in a conversation, but it became apparent when he's handing out bread and he disappears that they were like, whoa, you know, that was the Lord. He was with us the whole time. Didn't our hearts burn as he opened the scriptures to us? So he did it unexplainable things. He appears in a locked room in the middle of them. It says, peace be unto you. And you're like, wow. So we catch glimpses of what's in store for us. But I think more than being able to do things we would say as miraculous, um, we will be like him, meaning we will be righteous like him. We will be holy like him, completely without the stain of sin, without the effect of it on us anymore. It says we shall be like him, we shall see him, as he is. And this suggests that we don't see everything as clearly as we could. That our eyes are limited. We don't see everything, do we? Uh, if you could show that graphic, um, it's really interesting when you look at the visible spectrum. So you see you've got uh, cosmic rays, gamma rays, then microwaves broadcast. So there's all these waves that are happening that are perceivable. They're actually there. But see this little 400 to 700 nanometers. That's all we can see. That's it. All these rays, all this stuff is happening. We have this little window that we can actually see. Imagine if you could see everything. You could see all that. Well, that's how it's going to change. So we have this little picture, we have this little idea of what heaven is going to be like and, and how God really is. And he gives us true insight. The things we can see, it's real. But there's a lot more happening that we can't see, even with our eyes. And so a day is coming when we will see him as he is. We will see much more in totality. I don't think we'll be all-knowing uh, when we're glorified uh, as he is but uh, we will see him as he is. So this is a little illustration there. We have no idea what we can't see. I don't know what I'm missing right now, but I know that God is going to add to the full, full picture. What, what's the full picture I can see? It's very small compared to as he is. We can hold very strong opinions today that if we saw the big picture, we wouldn't hold them quite the way we do. If you could turn to Philippians 3, 20 through 21, we see that we will be changed. We, will, we are undergoing this spiritual renovation that will ultimately be glorification, will be changed. I love it that God blows us away today with what we see of him, with what we know of him. It blows my mind the things that God does. As I was studying this, just thinking about who he is and his love for me, his love for us, that just blew my mind. And, and it's just little things that I can see. But imagine when God, when we see him as he is, how it will just gobsmack us. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body 
that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. He will subdue to himself. So with this in mind, that we are children of God, that we will be further transformed, and that we will see Christ appearing and see him as he is. Verse 3 in 1 John 3, it says, And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As children of God, we're fully confident in his unfailing love toward us, that one day we're going to be united with him forever. And in preparation for this eternal union, the wise, they seek to purify themselves uh, according to God's standard. So God's taken away from us the penalty of sin, the punishment of sin, uh, as far as in hell for eternity. But we are to seek to remove the presence of sin from our hearts and our minds. Sinful behavior, sinful ways of coping, we're to seek to remove those in his strength from our hearts, from our minds. Now think about this. Imagine you were a Levite and it was the days of the temple and the high priest is going on a trip and he's given you some things to do. And he says, um, make sure the temple's well looked after. One of your jobs is to guard the door. Make sure we don't have, you know, mice running in here. Nothing unclean enters these doors. If someone's or some unclean dog or animal is, you know, sniffing around, don't let it come in. Okay, so watch the door. Make sure the wood's cut for the offering. There's a morning and an evening sacrifice. We need to have wood. Okay, make sure the wood's cut and uh, make sure the libation offering, uh, we have a good storehouse. The storehouse is well stocked for the libation offering. Now, if you weren't sure he was going to come back ever, how seriously would you take these charges? You know, if it was just depended upon you to do them. There wasn't a whole team of you. It was just you. And you had to make sure that you stayed to it. And there was no clocking in. There was no, no one checking up on you as far as, uh, he didn't, he didn't necessarily send people to, to bird dog you, as we would say. You guys familiar with that? Bird dogging? Yeah, I guess it's a tradey term in the States. So a bird dog is someone who's like, you know, pointing to you, kind of dobbing you in if you're not doing the right thing. So people would get the reputation of being a bird dog, trying to, Get on the good side of the, the management. We don't like bird dogs. So anyway. Now, if you were confident of the high priest's return, that he could really come back at any time, and you wanted to make a good impression on him, you would make sure that your job was done. Now, Jesus, our great high priest, he has gone to the Father, he's promised to return, and we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And we ought to ensure that we remain pure, even as he is pure. I mean, if he shows up and there's a bunch of stray dogs running around in the sanctuary, and, oh, oh yeah, I forgot to cut the wood, and actually I've been forgetting to cut the wood, and we've been, uh, instead of just stocking the wine, we've been tasting and sampling it to the point we're a bit tipsy, that would not be a good look when he returns. And so if you have this hope as a child of God, then we are to purify ourselves even as he is pure. We look to him as the example. We say, Lord, I want to resemble that in purity and holiness and walking in your ways. So as children of God, we ought to purify ourselves. He purified us, right? He's purifying us, but we too have to cooperate with that. One thing my parents taught me 
early is with freedom comes responsibility, that if you want increased freedoms, like driving, for instance, well, if you want to drive and the freedom associated with it, you have to uh, show that you're responsible. You need to get a job, you need to pay for your rego and your insurance and your petrol and repairs, and this falls to you. If you want this, this is what is required. And it's really similar to a biblical principle that to whom much is given, much is required. And God has given us much. And the cool thing is, the more responsible we are with what God's given us, the more he will commit to us. Think about if you have a team at work. You're not going to choose someone who has never shown an ability to perform as a leader for that team. You want to choose someone that you can trust, that you know has is a hard worker, will get things done, stay on task, take it seriously. You're going to give them more responsibility because they can handle it. And uh, we have an opportunity to be vessels of honor for God, to be used by him. We've been talking about this lately in tribe. If you turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, 19 through 21, and I probably referenced this a few weeks ago. I can't remember what I talk about sometimes. But we need to decide, I need to decide if I want to be a vessel of honor or a vessel of dishonor. And the vessel of honor is a clean vessel. It's a vessel that's prepared and ready for the master to use whenever he wants to. If it's filthy, if it's dirty, if it's unclean, that's not going to be the vessel that he will use to give to a guest or to drink from himself. Okay, so it says in 2 Timothy 2, 19, Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. But in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honor and some for dishonor. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from the latter, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified and useful for the master, prepared for every good work. So notice the connection between our identity as God's children and our choice to depart from sin. Those two things go together. God's children who purify themselves from sin, they will be the useful ones that he will employ. They will be the ones he chooses to give responsibility, prepared for his work. So the question is, how can we practically do that? How can we prepare ourselves for the master's work? How can we, I mean, we've repented, we've been born again, God has washed us clean, but what do we have to do? How do we cooperate? Well, if you could turn to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. It's in a passage where Paul is exhorting husbands to love their wives, and we have insight into how we can be purified and set apart for good works. So Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 25. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Jesus has demonstrated his love for us by dying on the cross. He's purchased us with his blood, and we are now the church 
all of us individual parts that have been purchased as one body of which he is a head. And here, this church or gathering of believers is compared to a bride. Now, when a woman's engaged to be married, she's preparing for her wedding. If she loves her husband, well, she's not going to entertain potential suitors any longer. She's not going to be going on dates. She's not going to be sleeping around. She is spoken for. She is taken, right? She, she has her loyalty and her affections in one place, her husband. An important and traditional part of weddings, I think especially in the West, and I would say probably across the world, is really to wear for the bride to wear clean and a special dress on the big day. And a lot of effort is put into having just the, the right dress, the right look, looking good, you know, looking your best. Now notice in this passage, the emphasis is not upon the church trying to clean itself up or the people. It falls to them. It's their responsibility to clean themselves up. Notice it says there that the emphasis is put upon Jesus and his desire to sanctify and cleanse the church with the washing of water by the word. So through his word, we are cleansed. So it does not depend primarily upon us to present ourselves to God in purity, but it's God's will that Jesus would present us before the Father without spot or blemish. It's his work. He does this. It's God who makes us holy. It's he who makes us without blemish. It's he who will present us before the Father with exceeding joy, right? I don't, I can't present myself before him in my righteousness. I have none. It's his righteousness. So it's Jesus who does the cleansing. It's Jesus who does the washing. He who sanctifies, but I'm also called to cooperate with that according to his word. So from beginning to end, we're not pure by our own efforts. But because God has purified us, because he has purified us, I seek to purify myself because I'm a child of God. That's my identity now. So look at 1 John 3, verse 3, one more time. It says, and everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So my hope is not in my own ability to try to be good. The hope, notice, is in him, not in me. The hope is in him. So my acceptance by God, any future honor or reward I receive from God, it does not risk in my efforts. My hope is in him. Your hope, believer, is in him. It's not in your ability to be good. Because not one of us is good by his standard. And a lot of Christians are discouraged because they think they have to prove themselves worthy of God's love. Oh, now I'm a child of God. I've got to live up to it. I've got to try to maintain something. And it becomes an effort of the flesh rather than reliance upon him in the spirit. I love that our God is a glorious, awesome God, that he's able to cleanse us. He's able to purify us and present us faultless before himself. And we can feel confident we are going to heaven, not because I don't sin anymore or even because I sin less than I used to, but because I am a child of God through the gospel. That is why I am accepted, because Jesus has purchased me, and I am his, and he is mine. He has chosen to adopt this sinful wretch. He has called me his own. He's claimed me. He has purchased me. 
He has loved me with an everlasting love, and he has loved you too. He has an amazing future planned for us now and in heaven forever, not because uh, you're good, but because a good and gracious God loves us, and he's going to keep on loving you. Have you tasted and seen that God is good? Do you know this kind of love? When I look back at the days when I lived with my parents, at the time I would say I thought I was a better son than I was. I thought I was a pretty good son. But I look back and there's things that I go, no, you know, I was pretty rotten. I would, you know, there were times where I lied. There were times when I, I did not honor my parents as I should. I'm not proud of those things. Now, we have a Heavenly Father we should be proud of. You know, we can rejoice in. He knew I was no prize when He chose to die for me. He, he knew that He knows who we are before He chose to purchase us. But I ask you, are you proud of the way that you're living as a child of God right now? You know, God forbid a day should come when we're proud of how good we are as God's children. I'm like, man, you know, I've come a long way. And thinking that it has anything to do with you. It's God who's done it. He's the one who's purchased us. He's the one who's cleansed us. And so the question is, have you been purifying yourself as he is pure? Are you seeking to align your heart and your affections with things above, not things of the earth? That your, your mind is fixed upon him and not upon self anymore. I want to be like that tax collector who Jesus described as going to the temple and he did not have the heart to even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just beat his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's how he identified. And Jesus said, that man went to, went home justified. That one. Not the one who was talking about how great he was and all the good things he's done. So, if you could turn to John chapter 1. So the Gospel of John chapter 1, verse 11. As we consider what Jesus has done as we remember and proclaim his death till he comes, it's very fitting that we would just recall to mind the way that he has demonstrated that love through his death and resurrection. So John chapter 1, starting in verse 11, says, He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. God gave the Jews his laws. He chose them as his special people. Jesus Christ, the lawgiver, the one who wrote the law, the judge of all the world, he came in human form to reveal his love to them. He was born of the Virgin Mary, but the Jews did not recognize him as their Messiah. They didn't see that he was God made flesh, and they refused him as their Messiah. It says there, his own did not receive him. Jesus was betrayed, he was mocked, he was scourged, he was crucified to a Roman cross out of envy. And when the blood of Jesus was shed, 
that is when the right was given to people to repent and be born again and become the temple of the Holy Spirit through the gospel. So we can become a child of God through what Jesus has done. If we will believe on him, as it says there, as many as received him. And the picture of receiving communion is very true. When you say receiving, right? It's tasting and seeing. Not seeing, just with your eyes. Actually receiving. Putting it into yourself. And that's how it is with Christ. When we come to him through faith, we receive him. We believe in him and we, he is welcomed into our lives. And he changes us. We are born again through him. And so God will receive as his own children all who trust in him. And I'll just read a bit from 1 Corinthians 11. Before Jesus went to the cross, this is what happened. He celebrated the Passover meal with his disciples, and Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians 11:23 that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then Paul adds in verse 26, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. It always seems strange to me that Jesus did this before he died, knowing he was going to rise from the dead. So why would he want to have his death proclaimed? Well, in his death, Romans 5.8, it says that that's the way that God demonstrated his love to us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So it's really a proclamation of God's love when we proclaim his death till he comes. And that says, I believe he's coming back. And as his child, I want to purify myself as he is pure. And I have received him into my life even as we eat of the, the bread and the cup, that his body, his shed blood, his body was broken for me, his blood has washed me, I have been redeemed by his grace, he lives within me. We are now receivers of his love, once unworthy, once cut off from God and without hope in the world, we now have a new life through Jesus Christ. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Will you receive that love today? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you that that love was shown through Christ's death. Thank you that you have a great hope for us in the heavens. Thank you that you have washed us clean of all sin. And I pray, Lord, as we draw near to the communion table together, that we would uh, just be overwhelmed with a sense of your love, of your sacrifice, that you are willing to suffer and die so we sinners could be redeemed and made your own children. Thank you, Lord, that you want us to want you. You want to live with us forever. And I pray that you would uh, forgive us of sin and open our eyes to things that creep into our minds and our hearts, doubts and cares of this world, affections of, of worldly things that are not of you. Lord, I, I pray that you would 
just illuminate our hearts even now. And I pray, Lord, that as we gather, we would, we would truly proclaim your death till you come, knowing that you're coming, knowing that you're coming suddenly, and that we must be ready. Thank you that we can look forward to your coming with great joy and great confidence in your appearing, not, not by works that we've done, but according to the mercy with which you've saved us. Thank you, Lord, for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for uh, the body of Christ throughout the whole world. And we ask that we would draw near to you, washed in the blood of Jesus, rejoicing in your sacrifice and in your love. In Jesus' name, amen.